Now please stand for the reading of God's word. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at, table in, at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he came, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is God's word. Thank you, Sophie. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open uh, to, sec uh, to Mark chapter two as we begin together this morning. Let's pray together. God, we pray that you would help us receive the truth that is contained in this passage from Mark chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, that we would know and rejoice in the fact that our salvation comes to us by grace alone, not by our hard work. We pray, Lord, that you would press this truth into our hearts, that we might truly understand it and live according to it. And we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Well, I'm sure that many of you can easily think of a teacher that you had growing up who made a big difference in your life and education. For me, it was a math teacher that I had throughout most of high school. 
Now, you should know that I was not then and am not now someone who excelled at studying mathematics, but she was such a good teacher that I took every single math class that was offered by my high school, and I went far beyond the requirement, the minimum requirement for graduation. I think I knew then what I know now, which is that I was never going to go into a field that would require me to know calculus or trigonometry, but I signed up for those classes anyway because she was just that good of a teacher. And even though math did not come easily to me, I made it through those classes because of the way that she taught me. She did what the best teachers do. She broke things down. She helped me to understand the underlying concepts that were involved and then showed me how to apply the things that we were learning. But the best thing that she did was host an optional study hall twice a week, every week. And let me tell you something. I was there. I didn't miss a single one for three years. I was at that study hall every time the door was open. I knew that I needed extra help if I was going to get through calculus. And she knew that sometimes difficult concepts need to be repeated before they are understood. Math did not come naturally to me, so I needed things repeated a lot. <laughs> because the more foreign the concept, the more difficult it is for that concept to break through and to really be understood. I think that's what Mark was thinking when he compiled the passage that we're looking at this morning. In it, he has assembled several scenes which probably did not occur uh, one right after the other, but which Mark has assembled for us because the idea that ties them together is one that is hard to really get a hold of. In each of the scenes that we're looking at this morning that are a part of this passage, Jesus has a run-in with the Pharisees in which they accuse him of wrongdoing of some form or another. And the underlying theme of each one of these confrontations is the same, because Jesus is the master teacher who knew that important concepts need repeating if they are really going to be understood. The Pharisees, we should know, are a unique sect within ancient Judaism. They were obsessive about religious uh, obedience to the law, and they took it upon themselves to be the police who monitored everyone else's behavior. We see that happen several times in this passage. And because they were passionate about the law, they developed a sense of superiority about themselves when they saw others who weren't as serious as they were. That's what ultimately and immediately set them against Jesus. He claimed to be God's own son, but he failed to meet the standard that they wanted to impose on everyone, and so they rejected him. That's what we see happening again and again in this passage that we're looking at today. These scenes take place early on in Jesus' ministry, but by the end, by chapter 3, verse 6, these Pharisees will be plotting together about how to destroy Jesus because he is challenging the very heart of their culture and belief system. What they can't see, or perhaps what they refuse to accept, is that even though they take the law more seriously than anyone else, and they've done more to obey it as closely as possible than anyone else, they are still as hopelessly lost as someone who has willfully and shamelessly broken it a million times. Jesus is striking at the very sense of superiority that they so cherished, telling them that they are really just like everyone else. The lesson that the master teacher is repeating in these scenes is simple, but it is hard to get a hold of, and it is this. No matter how hard the Pharisees tried, they could not earn their way into God's approval. The Pharisees tried harder than anyone else. By the company that they kept, 
the traditions that they upheld and the rules they obeyed, but those strategies have not made the difference. Later, Jesus will condemn them as hypocrites whose outward appearance is amazing, but who are inwardly full of sin. The problem that this passage addresses is that no matter how hard any person tries, none of us can work our way out from under God's righteous judgment for sin and into his good graces. But that does not mean that we are without hope. In Christ, we are loved because of his grace alone, not our merit. We are blessed by God because of his grace alone, not by how much we deserve it. And we are ultimately able to obey God, to be people who are faithful to him, like the Pharisees were trying to be, because of his grace alone, which not only saves his people, but makes them holy too. It sounds simple, and in some ways it is, but it bears repeating because it is hard to let go of what our instincts tell us. Here in Mark 2, it begins when Jesus calls Levi to follow him. Levi, who also goes by the name Matthew and will go, later go on to write the book of Matthew, has, uh, was a strange choice for Jesus to make. As he was considering the 12 disciples that he would call to be his closest followers, Levi was a strange choice. Up to this point, Jesus has only called fishermen to be his disciples. They were laborers, not scholars, so choosing them probably intrigued people, but it didn't offend anyone. But Levi is different. He was a tax collector, which made him probably one of the most hated people in town. The tax collectors were people who went to work for the occupying Roman government, and people hated the Romans, so they hated people like Levi that chose to work for them even more. The tax collectors had a quota to fill for Rome. They had money that they had to send to Rome certain amounts, but anything that they collected beyond that, above and beyond that quota, they were allowed to keep for themselves. So, they were seen as morally reprehensible traitors to their own people and extortionists. The job was lucrative, but it came at a very, very high social cost. Tax collectors were barred from the synagogue, they were shunned by their own community, and they were even disowned by their families. It's hard to think of a modern equivalent that can match the universal hatred that people had for people like Levi. So when Jesus, who is being followed by a large crowd, Mark tells us, walked by Levi's booth and says, follow me, it was an absolutely scandalous move. But Jesus went even further than that. He went to Levi's house and ate dinner with lots of tax collectors and other socially objectionable people who both the Pharisees and Mark himself referred to as sinners. Eating dinner at Levi's house was a move that sent a very strong message. It suggested that Jesus saw Levi as a friend. And for the Pharisees, this was just too much. The word Pharisee means one who is separated. That is just the meaning of the title that they've chosen for themselves, one who is separated. They thought that in order to maintain their own spiritual purity, they needed to avoid people that they considered unrighteous at all costs. As we'll see multiple times, that's probably because that they added to God's word in some way or another. In the Mosaic law, there were instructions that God gave to his people to avoid certain things because they would compromise someone's purity. Things like dead bodies. Because death is contrary to God's life-giving nature, coming in contact with a dead body made someone ritually unclean for a certain amount of time. So the Pharisees read that Things like it, and they concluded, we need to avoid all kinds of other things too. 
And those things included people like Levi and tax collectors in general and just generally sinful people that Jesus is cavorting with right now. They were so serious about keeping their distance from people like Levi that rabbinic teaching from the era instructed Jews to let not a man ever associate with a wicked person, not even for the purpose of bringing him near the Torah. Let not a man ever associate with a wicked person, even for the purpose of trying to redeem him, trying to bring him back to obedience to God's word. The Pharisees believed that being near wickedness had a contaminating effect. It reminds me of the early days of the pandemic when we were all doing our own sort of at-home version of six degrees of COVID-19. Someone would get sick, they would call the people that they had been around to let them know that they were sick, then those people had to determine if their risk was high enough that they had to also call the people they had been around to let them know that they had been in contact with someone who had been in contact with someone who was sick. And the question became, have I been too close to someone who is sick that now I am compromised too? For the Pharisees, it wasn't a matter of spreading an illness, though, because they believed that their good standing before God himself was at risk if they fraternized with the wrong people. That's exactly what they see Jesus doing at Levi's house. And so they ask his disciples in verse 16, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he voluntarily hanging out with those people? Underneath their question is an accusation about how anyone claiming to be a servant of God and a leader of God's people can be so obviously ungodly himself, so obviously compromised. But Jesus hearing their question, interjects with an answer to their accusation and the belief that has prompted it. He says in verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And we should be careful not to misunderstand Jesus here. The whole Bible testifies to the fact that no one is righteous before God, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and Jesus' own interactions with the, with the Pharisees throughout the Gospels confirm that he does not think of them as righteous and godly people. His point here is that these tax collectors and sinners are exactly the people that he should be hanging out with, because good standing before God doesn't come from hanging out with the right people. It comes when the great physician calls sinners to receive grace. This is one of a couple of purpose statements that Jesus gives for his ministry when he says, this is what I came for, and it is to find Levi and others like him, to call them by name, to call them to repentance, and then to show them grace. God's favor, his approval, his blessing, his affection is not earned by the company that we keep, neither is it earned by the traditions that we uphold. In verses 18 through 22, Jesus is again comforted, uh, confronted rather by the Pharisees who ask why his disciples are not fasting. Fasting was required in ancient Jewish law, but only under specific circumstances, the most significant of which was in preparation for the Day of Atonement. Beyond that, fasting was a personal practice that was not required, but was helpful. But the Pharisees chose to fast twice a week, every week, as a sign of their devotion to God. Just like they did before, in avoiding people like Levi, they've taken what is commanded in Scripture and added to it, requiring things that God does not, because they believe that these new traditions put them a step ahead of the average person. 
and it's made them feel superior to the people who don't participate in their pious habits. The Pharisees had a whole list of traditions. They memorized whole books of Scripture. They made additional offerings at the temple. They fasted, and they did other things that they believed would tip the scales, the heavenly scales, in their favor. Jesus, in answering their question, does not condemn fasting. He doesn't say fasting is the problem, nor does he condemn fasting more often than is required in the law, because tradition isn't the problem. It is a wrong understanding of tradition that is the problem. Jesus' answer here requires a little bit of unpacking, but it is amazing. He says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Okay, so why is Jesus talking about a wedding? What does that have to do with the Pharisees' concern about fasting and the traditions that they uphold? There are a few threads that Jesus has woven together here, and we need to sort of tease them out if we're going to understand his answer and why he's bringing up a wedding. The first thread is that Jesus is referring to himself as the groom in a wedding. He's drawing on lots of Old Testament references from the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea, where God refers to his people as a bride and to himself as a bridegroom. Jesus is making a not-so-subtle claim about his own divinity that the Pharisees would have picked up on right away because they were scholars of books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea. But Jesus uses those Old Testament references where God calls himself a bridegroom, and he calls his people his bride, he uses those Old Testament references to make an illustration about a wedding celebration that will help him make his point. A wedding is not the time to fast. It's a time to celebrate and enjoy the blessings of God, especially a wedding back in Jesus' day, which was a week-long party. It wasn't like today where you go and there's a 20-minute sort of ceremony and then there's a three-hour thing with cake and music, and then everybody goes home. This was like the whole town came together for a week of celebration and feasting. That is not the time to fast, but there is a time to fast. And Jesus says, it is after the bridegroom is taken away. He is anticipating in this illustration that he's making that there will come a day when the bridegroom is no longer with the bride. He's anticipating his own death, and that is the day for fasting. The Pharisees have the order of things reversed. They think that by demonstrating their devotion to God in traditions like fasting, they will climb the ladder of righteousness higher and higher and higher. And from those heights, they look down on people that they think are beneath them who have not put in the time or the effort to climb as high as they have. And Jesus flips that belief upside down. There is a place for tradition. There is a place for the pursuit of righteousness and for daily commitment to growing in holiness. There is a place for that, but it comes after the bridegroom has been taken away. Jesus grows to the cross to redeem sinners, to justify the guilty, and to pour out his grace for his people, not because they have earned his justification, not because they have earned his affection, not because they have earned that sacrifice, but in spite of the fact that they never could have. And after the bridegroom is taken away, after his people are justified by grace alone, after the atoning death and victorious resurrection of Christ, when guilt has been wiped away and new life has begun, that is the time for fasting. 
That is the time for acts of devotion that are not carried out under the false pretense that they can merit God's favor, but with the joyful knowledge that God has redeemed his people when they did not deserve it. There is a time for fasting and for all manner of pious traditions, but they are not to earn God's affection. They are a response to God's affection. So the grace of God is not something that the Pharisees can layer on top of their traditions. It requires a whole new way of thinking about what it means to know and be loved by God. So Jesus says in verse 21, No one sews an unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And then in verse 22, No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. What everyone listening to Jesus make those two little illustrations would have understood is that uh, fermenting, when it happens, wine, as it's fermenting, expands and maybe releases a bunch of gas. I don't really know. There's something happening, and it swells up. So the material that they use to ferment wine, to, to hold the wine while it's fermenting, could only be used once because it would stretch as the wine aged. And Jesus' point here is that you can't just cram grace into the pharisaical way of thinking about what it means to know God. It's like putting new wine into an old wineskin or an unshrunk cloth onto a new garment. It isn't grace on top of good works. It is grace alone. Otherwise, the wineskin bursts, the garment tears, and grace is lost completely. For the Pharisees, this was the lesson that Jesus is repeating over and over and over again. Because either God's grace covers our sin or it doesn't. Either he atones for our guilt or he didn't. There is no middle way because God's favor is not earned by the traditions that we uphold any more than the company that we keep. You cannot fill the old wineskins of legalism with the new covenant of grace. Jesus drives home this point in the third section of the passage in two separate confrontations over the issue of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the most significant distinguishing cultural feature for Jews in the first century. Unlike other nations, the last day of the week was reserved for rest and for worship, and work was prohibited. God had given his people that, instru that instruction explicitly in the law, and he had indicated the significance of that command with severe consequences that are outlined in the law for people who violated the Sabbath. It was meant to be a day of genuine rest for his people a day of rejoicing in the faithfulness and goodness and glory of God. But in the first century, the Sabbath is anything but restful. A list of a few dozen rules had been developed to ensure that people did not violate the Sabbath or get anywhere close to violating the Sabbath, and they were very specific. People were not allowed to harvest their fields because that was work. They could pick up grain that had fallen on the ground, but they couldn't pick grain from the top of a stalk because that was work. They could walk up to 1,999 paces. That was okay. But a journey of 2,000 paces or more was considered work. And it's one of these two rules, or maybe both of them, that the Pharisees see Jesus and his disciples breaking in verse 23. They're walking through a grain field, and they're plucking some kernels of grain to eat as a snack. And the Pharisees ask them, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? 
They were incredulous that someone claiming to be an authority on God's word and a teacher of God's people would allow such an egregious violation of God's instruction. And Jesus answers them with a seemingly obscure reference to a passage from the Old Testament in the book of 1 Samuel. In that passage, David, King David, has fled. He's not the king yet, but he's the, going to be the king. Uh, he's fled life-threatening danger. And while he's on the run, he went to the temple and asked to eat the bread that the law said was only for the priests to eat. And the priests, who care both about the law and about the character of God that the law points to, chose to give David the bread. Jesus is making two points here, and the first is a connection with David. In the same way that he refers to himself as the bridegroom in the last scene, now he's referring to himself as the heir of David's own throne, who will fulfill the covenant that God made with David. So like David, he has a special identity and office that the Pharisees should consider, just like the priests in David's own day did. The subtext of Jesus' reference to Davis is that if uh, to, to David rather is that if these Pharisees knew the scriptures as well as they claim to know the scriptures, then they would recognize Jesus as the one who will fulfill all the promises of scripture. So there's a subtle sort of rebuke in his reference to David here. Secondly, though, he's making the point that because the Pharisees don't know the scripture as well as they think they do, they've misunderstood the purpose of the law entirely. It was meant to be something that points to the holiness of God that causes the people to rejoice. Instead, it has become a burden that is so heavy that it crushes the people that it was meant to help. And in verses 27 and 28, he ties both of these points together when he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Later, when Jesus entered the synagogue, the Pharisees have laid a trap for him. They know that there's a man inside the synagogue who has an injured hand, and they are waiting to see if Jesus is going to heal him on the Sabbath. They don't seem surprised at all that Jesus can heal things like this, and they don't seem to care about what that power and authority point to. They only want to catch Jesus doing something that they can use against him. So we read that they watched to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. But Jesus flips their trap around on them with one question. He asks them in chapter 3, verse 4, is it lawful on the Sabbath to save life or to kill? No matter how they answer that question, they will be wrong, and they know it. Jesus is putting them on the spot. Does God outlaw doing good things on the Sabbath? If someone needed help, but they were 2,001 paces away, is it unlawful and ungodly to go and help them? If they say yes, they know that means that they are ignoring the commands of God in favor of their own rules. If they say no, then their current accusation about the Sabbath will be worthless. It loses all of its weight. They're stuck. They cannot answer, so they say nothing. And we read in verse 5, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and then he healed the man's hand. The word translated anger in this passage does not mean an irritation. It is fury. Jesus is angry that they have so completely forsaken God's commands for their own, that they have so severely misunderstood the law and the mercy of God. But it is fury that is mixed with grief. He is grieved in his heart because of the fact that they have made God's blessings into burdens 
and then loaded up their own shoulders with those burdens. The Sabbath and all the rules that these Pharisees follow have become a ladder that they must climb in order to reach God rather than God's merciful gift to his people. But they are too hard-hearted to accept that they actually need God's mercy. Because God's favor is not earned by the rules that we obey. The Pharisees fundamentally misunderstood how we come to know and relate to God. And in the process, they have overestimated themselves and underestimated God. Because that's just what legalism does. It diminishes God and magnifies people. It assumes that either God is too weak or too careless to help, and that we must fix things ourselves, and that we're able to do it. So Jesus, in anger and grief, heals the man who has a withered hand on the Sabbath, in yet another strike against this pharisaical, legalistic way of thinking. It is a difficult lesson to learn, because it is such a foreign concept. So Jesus repeats it, like a good teacher, using illustrations and practical examples and visual aids across multiple days to get the point across, but they remain unconvinced. Instead, they go from the synagogue to plot with a group called the Herodians about how they might destroy Jesus, because the point has come where they don't just want him to be silenced anymore, they want him to be destroyed. He represents such a threat to their whole way of thinking that they are willing to work with people that they hate. The Herodians were a group of Jewish politicians and leaders who had sided with their Roman oppressors. So the Herodians were hated, but they did have lots of power and authority and sway over what happened in the, in the, in the cities of the first century. And in an, in an ironic twist, the same men who villainized Jesus for eating a meal in the home of a tax collector are now working alongside people who are just as traitorous. And the fact that the Pharisees are working together with them tells us a lot about how desperately they wanted Jesus out of the way. Because he represents not only a threat to their cultural authority among the Jewish people, but the very sense of security that they feel before God. Jesus has come to proclaim a new kingdom, and it is open to tax collectors, to sinners, to lawbreakers, and outcasts, because the way in is not by working hard enough to deserve it but by grace alone. So in Christ, there is no room for boasting, as the Apostle Paul will later explain. Everyone is equally needy of God's mercies. None, not even the most obsessive Pharisee, like Paul himself was, is any better off. And nobody had a more impressive resume than Paul did. He was the best of the best, was born into the right family. He upheld every tradition. He was a scholar of biblical law. He was a zealous defender of the honor of God and was blameless in his adherence to God's commandments. But he says, in Christ, we put no confidence in those things because they cannot do for us what the grace of God can. In fact, they can do us more harm than good. When we begin to think that our good deeds, our rule following and our maintenance of tradition make us people who are worthy of God's approval. We not only lose sight of God himself, but enslave ourselves to the impossible struggle to make ourselves holy. And even though it was the Pharisees that Jesus confronts in this passage, it is not just the Pharisees who tend to think this way. In fact, it is the way that all people think until they come to know and understand the gospel. Every religious system in the world and every secular worldview in the world has this in common, this way of thinking in common. Do good, and then you can reasonably expect good to come in return. Be a good person, 
and good things will happen to you. Do what God or the gods of the universe wants, and then you can get what you want from the universe. One scholar describes this way of thinking as humanity's most natural theology. It is the way we are wired from birth to think about what it means to know and relate to God. The new covenant in Christ says, however, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before we had done anything to deserve it, God poured out his love for us, redeemed us from our guilt, and adopted us into his household. So that now our obedience to his command is not our attempt to make him happy with us, but our answer, our joyful answer to his grace. But that does not mean that legalism does not try to claw its way back into our thinking. We may not be hung up on the very same things that the Pharisees were, but that doesn't mean that we are any less prone to make the same mistakes. I heard a fellow pastor once say that if we want to figure out where legalism is lurking in our lives, we need to ask two questions. The first is, what is it about your life that makes you feel superior to other people? The second is, what is it about your life that makes you feel like a failure? It probably isn't the same things that the Pharisees are worried about. Are you proud of how much scripture you have memorized or ashamed of how little? Are you proud of how generous you are compared to other people that you know or hoping that no one ever sees where your money really goes? Are you critical of people in a way that makes you feel better about yourself? Or are you obsessed with the approval of other people? Are you racked with shame over yet another failure to resist temptation? Or does your discipline in overcoming sin make you feel secure before God? In what ways are you overestimating yourself and underestimating God? That is where we are neglecting grace. Just as it was for the Pharisees, it is a concept that we struggle to internalize. But the gospel reminds us again and again and again and again, day after day, that we are free of the crushing weight that they tried to carry. The gospel is truly good news because Christ has lifted that burden off of our shoulders and laid it on his own. So that now we are free to pursue righteousness, not out of fear that God might reject us, but in the joyful truth that he has loved us already. Let's pray. Father God, we rejoice in you today because your love for us is real. It is true already. Your kindness toward us has already come in the person and the work of your Son brought to bear in our hearts by your Spirit. We pray that you would remind us of these things today and every day that we might live and serve you with joy, not under the crushing weight of legalism. Let us receive grace with joy and go forth singing about the mercies that you've shown us. Lord, where we are tempted to overestimate ourselves, humble us. Where we are tempted to underestimate you, give us a magnificent view of your goodness and your grace. We pray these things this morning together in the name of Christ, who is our salvation. Amen.